So just as people are finding that, just to say that I'm, we've, Ellie and I have been waiting for this day, launching a church in Newcastle for a long time now. And just thank you so much for whatever part in the journey you have played. We are so, so grateful to you. And thanks for being here um, this afternoon. What I'd really love to spend the next 20 minutes or so doing is just setting out our vision for St. Thomas's here in the Diocese of Newcastle, right in the heart of the city centre. And the only way that I know how to do that is through the Word of God. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 16 together. And this is Luke's account of a church that was planted in Philippi in Macedonia. And I just think there's some amazing lessons for us to draw from this amazing passage of Scripture. So this is Acts chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 6 and we're going to read all the way through to verse 34, and it should come up on the screen behind me as well. So Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of, of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out at sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gates of the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to gather um, with the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Phyatria named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed, the Paul, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who were telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and he saw the prison doors open. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, 
says, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that through your written word, we may encounter the living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we get a first-hand account from Luke about what happens when a team of people planted a church in Philippi in Macedonia. And it's one of my favorite Bible passages. I think it's an extraordinary passage. And we know that this church that was planted had a huge impact on the entire region. I mean, let subsequent writing in the New Testament would talk about the impact that this little church was having beyond itself. It was known for resourcing others and for being generous. In fact, you could even say that it was one of the original resource churches. Now, what I really want us to see in this passage is this, that a church, a church with a vision to resource and to talk about Jesus and to do all of the kinds of things that Bishop Christine has asked us to do, needs to be a church that puts, prioritizes people and relationships, knows its gospel purpose, and believes in the radical power of gospel transformation. And we're going to see this, hopefully, as we go through this passage together. So the first P is all about people. Now, churches are all about people. And here at St. Thomas's, we are going to be no exception. And we see this in this passage, the importance of relationships and people. Look at verse 6. Paul and his companions were traveling through the region. Planting a church, doing ministry, doing life is not just a job for one person alone. We know that Paul was traveling with Silas and Timothy. We know that Luke was also with them. He's, he's writing this first-hand account. And what we see through this is that church is best done as family and, and deep, deep community. Church is best done when relationships are thriving, when people love one another, when people are united together around the gospel of Jesus. Now, even Jesus gathered a team around him. He had the three, the 12, the 72. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he never sent them out alone. He always sent them out at least in pairs. Now, we need to remember here at St. Thomas's that ministry and church life is primarily relational before it's functional. Because the church is all about relationships, relationship with God. And because of that, he makes possible relationship with each other. Now think about when Jesus called his disciples. He never told them where they were going to go. He rarely told them what they were going to do. When he called his disciples, he just said to them, come and follow me. Come and follow me. It's all about relationships. Life is at its best when people are flourishing in all that God has for them. And the number one reason why people flourish is good, healthy relationships. It's not background. It's not education. It's not the amount of money in a bank account. It's not the kind of car that you drive. It is relationships. There's an old African proverb that I absolutely love that says this. 
If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And we've been so privileged to be joined by so many people, partners, amazing churches that are already existing and up and running and have been doing for hundreds of years in this city. People joining with us as we proclaim the good news of Jesus together. But it's all about doing that in good friendship and relationship. C.S. Lewis was once asked if he was to give somebody a piece of advice about where they should live. C.S. Lewis said this would be his advice. Friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the cheap happiness of life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young person about where to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost anything to live where you can be near your friends. Now, Paul knew this, I think, which is why he had a team of gospel people around him. Now, what I find fascinating about this passage is that at the start of the passage, Paul and the team do not have a clue where they're going to end up. They don't know where they're going to go. They don't know what they're going to do, but they do know that they're going to do it together. Now, for those of you that have come perhaps from um, different parts of the Diocese of Newcastle today, and you've been following this whole journey since it was announced that Ellie and I were coming in March 2018, you'll know that we originally were going to be down at All Saints on the quayside, and that didn't happen for various reasons. And when Ellie and I moved here in January, we still didn't have a church building to move into. So we moved here along with a team of 30, 35 people from York that had committed to moving. And we moved into Ninechester Crescent, which is the house um, where, the, where the church leader of St. Thomas's lives. But we had no clue where the building was going to be. We didn't know where the church was going to be located. And I can honestly say that we didn't lose, well, I certainly didn't, I don't know about you, dear. I didn't lose a single second sleep about it at all. Because I knew that we had an amazing team of people already in the diocese working on this thing. We were going to be joining amazing colleagues who've been doing some wonderful things right across the city and beyond. And we were coming with a team of people who were committed to the gospel and, con and committed to each other. Church is primarily about relationships. Mike Pilavacci, an Anglican vicar in Watford, said this in a sermon recently. The church is not called to be a business, but a family. The world is not crying out for more products. People are just desperate to belong. Now, it is not courses or programs or SDF bids, strategic development funding bids for the Church of England, or amazing snazzy, you know, churches or amazing music or anything that causes transformation in people's lives. It is relationships and primarily relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this as we go through the rest of these verses together. It's all about relationships. It's all about people. Now, when you get the right people, once you've got that, you'll find that you have a common purpose. So this little team has been formed and they know they're going to go and plant a church somewhere. They know they're going to go and talk about Jesus, but they don't have a clue where they're going to go. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let them stay where they were. Paul wanted to go to Asia, but again, the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go there. But they had this deep sense of unease and discomfort about just staying still. And so they just began to do something. They began to pray and they began to move. Now, I want to say to all of us, wherever we've come from today, that this is probably what the church in this land needs to start doing with a bit more confidence. 
We just need to begin to do something. And as they do this, as they wait on the Lord, that's a good place to start, just wait on the promises of God. Out of nowhere, in verse 9, Paul receives a dream. And the dream is of a man pleading with Paul to go to Macedonia. And Luke says right away in the next verse, in verse 10, that the team got ready at once to go. They got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. And in this verse, we also see their purpose. The purpose of going to Macedonia was to share the good news, to preach the gospel to them. We have a vision, an amazing vision in this diocese of growing church and bringing hope. It will only come as we commit to doing this, to sharing the good news with everybody. Some of us here today are from the New Wine family. We have also an amazing vision, very similar. Local churches changing nations. I, begin, I believe that we, we can see this literally happening in these verses, but it only comes because of God's presence and of the proclamation of Jesus, his reign, his rule, his sovereignty, his kingdom. Now, in this whole journey of Ellie and I arriving here at St. Thomas's, we had a few um, Man from Macedonia moments. Um, it was November 2017. I was actually at a church planting conference with Bishop Rick and Matthew Porter, the vicar of St. Michael Belfry, who are, who's on the front row just down there. And we got a phone call from Bishop Christine, Bishop Mark, asking us if we'd consider coming to the Diocese of Newcastle to start this resource church. And to be honest, we felt a little bit like Paul and the team here in Acts 16. We just felt like we could not say no. We'd been praying for so long to plant a church in a big city with lots of students where there's lots of young people. And as soon as that phone call came in, we just knew that we had to be obedient and we had to come to Newcastle. Now, for those of us who were maybe struggling with what God is calling us to at the moment, maybe we don't feel like we've got a purpose in life. Let this, courage, this, let this passage sorry, be an encouragement to you today. Paul and the team, notice in the passage, got two no's before they got their yes. They got a no to staying where they were. They got a no to going to Asia, even though Paul wanted to go there. And then they got their yes. Sometimes we just need to wait on God. Now, this was a big move for Paul and this little church planting team. None of them had been to Macedonia before. They'd never been to this city. They didn't know what kind of welcome they'd get. They didn't know if people would be hostile. They didn't know if they'd get a, a, a warm, you know, warm reception. And yet, despite all of that, they went anyway. Mark Batterson says this, disciples are humble enough to let God call the shots and yet brave enough to follow where he leads. Wouldn't it be great if in all of our discipleship, we could have this level of obedience to God? So just as we continue to go through these verses, just as we stop here, just for a brief moment, I wonder where God is calling you to. What is he calling you to? But perhaps most importantly, as we've gone through these verses so far together today, who is he calling you to? So the team are called to go to Philippi, to Macedonia, but why there? Why were they called to go to this particular place? 
Well, firstly, because there was a desperate need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that there weren't many God-fearers, to use Luke's language, in this city. We know that because the women were gathering by the river to pray. You'd only gather by the river to pray if there weren't enough men. In these days, you needed 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. There weren't even 10 God-fearing people in the whole city. Now, Paul knew this, which is why he went down to the river where he'd expect if there was going to be somebody praying, that is where he'd find them. So news of Jesus has not yet reached this city, and so there's a desperate need for it. Secondly, I think the reason that they go there, and Luke alludes to this in verse 12, is that we're told that it's the leading city in the district. It's vibrant. It's multicultural. It's a center of trade, of education, of commerce. It was a large city, and it was well-known all over the Roman Empire. So they were called to preach the gospel, but also, I think, because it was strategic. Now, I think that the same thing could be said about Newcastle. There is a desperate need for the good news of Jesus here in this city. Here at St. Thomas's, literally within 20, 30 yards of our building, there are 70, close to 70,000 students studying at the two universities on our front door and on our back door. We now know through church statistics that university students are the largest unreached people group in the United Kingdom. If you look at the latest census figures and break down Newcastle into five-year age categories, Newcastle is the youngest, I think, youngest city in the country. It's got one of the highest concentration of 20-something-year-olds of any city in Europe. There's loads of young families. There's loads of teenagers. And who are the least likely people to be in church? That age demographic. And yet they're complete, we're completely surrounded by them. So there's a desperate need for the gospel here. But like Philippi, Newcastle is also strategic. It's the capital of its district of the Northeast. It's a transport hub. It's a center of commerce and trade, of education. It's dynamic. It's multicultural. People in the Northeast look to Newcastle for a lead. Now, I think it's also of huge significance, not just because it's influential in the region, but also because of its spiritual heritage, which for those of us who live here is our shared spiritual heritage. So think about some of the things that have happened just in this very city or this very region. So think of the Northern Saints. This is a photo that I took recently on Holy Island. Um, of course, in our diocese, about an hour's drive north from here on the coast, since the 600s, this place has been sending out missionaries, evangelists, church planters, people to start houses of prayer since, since the 600s. This is a photo of Ellie in St. Mary's Chapel in Jesmondine. In the medieval period, there was a powerful move of the Holy Spirit in Newcastle, and it was well known across the whole land. In fact, one businessman left his entire estate so that people who wanted to come on pilgrimage to Newcastle could, be, could afford to get here. And what was happening was if people were sick, they knew that if they got to Jesmond, then they might get healed that they, encountered, they might encounter Jesus Christ. And lots of people did, and it was, a, it was a site of mass baptism. And that's why this chapel was built. So this area of Newcastle became known as Jesus's Mound, or the Mound of Jesus, which is why it's today known as Jesmond. I found out just earlier today that the original St. Thomas's, which was located um, further down towards the river in the city, St. Thomas's was the chapel, the church, that people would first stop at 
on their pilgrimage towards Jesmond. There were so many hotels and guest houses springing up in the city that even today, there's a street in the city called Pilgrim Street. We heard on the vision video as well about the 19th century revival that was actually sweeping across the whole nation. But Newcastle was impacted by this revival and St. Thomas's in particular was impacted. Now there's a plaque which you currently can't see because it's um, behind our drapes at the minute. But there's um, a, a plaque that talks about this particular move of God in Newcastle and the impact that St. Thomas's had, um, basically the impact of the revival on this church. And this plaque basically says that the congregation in the first few years of the 1800s, this is its wording, was small and unstable. Two Anglican ministers started working together, Clayton and Wansey. Within a few years, John Pearson, who's church, church warden, um, one of the church wardens here and I, were looking through the um, church statistics from 1851, average attendance. In St. Thomas's, the average attendance in 1851 was 2,398 on a Sunday with nearly 1,000 under 18s. Here in St. Thomas's. Now we believe that if God has done these things before, he can do them again. Newcastle is a significant place. It's strategic, not just because of its geography, but it's strategic, I believe, spiritually. Now, this is why I believe we've been, well, some of the reasons why we've been called here to set up St. Thomas's as a resource church, to preach the gospel. We're going to get on to that in a minute. This is our purpose. Now, when you get your purpose, you begin to see gospel power. And we can, see, we can clearly see this in these verses in Acts chapter 16. So in verses 11 to 15, we see that Lydia and her whole household are converted and baptized. Paul and the team introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ. And it's been wonderful here at St. Thomas's, even in the past few weeks, we've been doing um, lots of outreach to university students. And um, even last week, four um, university students gave their lives to Jesus at this, um, at our final pre-launch service. It's the most amazing thing to see. Now, Lydia was a businesswoman. She would have had lots of employees. She would have been very wealthy. I bet her conversion had a huge impact on the business community of that city. The next thing we see is a slave girl who's, tra who's trapped in slavery. She's probably been trafficked for sexual exploitation. Um, she would have been very, very young, early teens at the latest. And she's basically possessed demonically, Luke tells us. Um, but she too has this amazing encounter with Jesus Christ. Now this, of course, has huge repercussions for the people that feel like they owned her. They could no longer make a living out of, her, out of her. They could no longer get rich out of her fortune telling. And so they hatch a plan to have Paul and the whole team thrown into prison. But Paul and the team don't even let being in prison get them down. We find them in prison, don't we? Worshipping and praising God. Even in the difficult times, we're to give Jesus the glory. Even when it hurts, even when we don't know what we're doing, give Jesus the glory. Now, God sends this miraculous earthquake and all of the prison doors fling open and the man in charge of the prison thinks, oh my gosh, I'm going to be out of a job here. All the prisoners are going to have escaped. And so he begins to get a bit suicidal and he thinks about taking his own life. 
Suddenly, Paul cries out of nowhere that they're still there. And he ends up leading the jailer and his whole household to Jesus. And they're all baptized as well. Now, what I want us to notice in this passage is this. We have a businesswoman, a young trafficked slave girl, and a jailer all respond to the good news of Jesus. They're from different backgrounds. They have totally different life experiences. And yet they have one thing in common. But it doesn't look like that, does it? One's rich and at the top of society. Other is a slave girl and trapped in exploitation. One is suicidal. One's very young. The other two are probably a little bit older. One has employees, another is an employee, and the other is a slave. And yet they all do have one thing in common, a need for the gospel of Jesus. Now, what we take from this, what I take from this, is that there is no one who we should not share the good news of Jesus with. Absolutely no one. Doesn't matter who you are, what background you've had, whether you're smart or you don't feel smart, whether you're educated, rich, poor, young, old, wherever it is you're from in the world, we should share the good news of Jesus with everyone. That's the job of this church. That's the job of every single church. Now this unashamed proclamation of the good news of Jesus leads to a citywide transformation, or at least the start of it. So look at what happens in the passage. Households are transformed. Lydia's and the jailers, the whole households are baptized. That could have included a whole number of people, young and old. Businesses are impacted. I bet Lydia dealt with and did business very differently after meeting Jesus to the way that she did it before. Systems of injustice are challenged. Look at this girl who's been trapped in slavery and exploitation, and suddenly she's released because of the good news of Jesus. We begin to see signs and wonders on the streets. Now, this is what we are praying for here in Newcastle. The church is not just about having a cozy time on a Sunday. If all Christianity is, is coming to church, speaking a little cleaner than the rest of the world, and singing a few hymns and then going home and living like everybody else, I'm out. But if it's about the gospel, if it's about believing that Jesus, through his church, can have an impact on this city and everybody in it, then I'm totally up for that, and I am totally in. Now, all of this leads to the people in this city to ask exactly what the jailer asks towards the end of the reading. Look at what he asks the team. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? We pray that people are going to ask that question of us. We pray that as we see some of the things, by the grace of God, as we see some of the things happen in Newcastle that we see happen in this passage, we pray that people are going to ask, what must I do to be saved? And our answer must be the same as the answer that Paul and the team give here. Repent, believe, be baptised, 
It's Mark 1, 15, the first words of Jesus' ministry. Now for the jailer to respond, for Lydia to respond in the way that they do, is deeply, deeply countercultural. In the Roman Empire, people worshipped Caesar as Lord. So to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord was deeply subversive. Deeply, deeply subversive. But the point is this, whether we worship Jesus or not, we are all worshipping something. All of us are worshipping something. Wherever it is that you get your identity, wherever it is that you get your affirmation, that is who you're worshipping. One atheist, a novelist in the United States of America, in a lecture that he gave to a graduating group of students, he was... Um, not a Christian at all, as I say, he, he didn't believe in God. But he started off his lecture by saying this, we all worship something. We don't get a choice about what we worship. So we don't get a choice about whether we worship, just about what we worship. What we see in this passage throughout the whole Bible is that whatever we worship will eventually consume us. You worship money, you'll never have enough. You worship status, you'll never have enough. You worship fame, you'll never be famous enough. You worship career, you'll never have enough promotions. Jesus Christ is the only object of our worship that will not consume or destroy us. Why? Because he died on a cross for our sin, rose again so that we could have freedom and new life and have it in abundance. We don't have to earn it. There's nothing we could do to deserve it. It's a free, undeserved, unmerited gift. Your bank account will not die for you. That football team that you worship will not die for you. Those relationships won't die for you. Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. Now you can have this free gift of relationship with God and restored relationship with people today. And it's all through believing in Jesus. So this is what we're going to be about here at St. Thomas's. People and good relationships, partnering with others, working in good relationships because God himself, through Jesus on the cross, has reconciled us not only to himself, but to each other. We're going to absolutely commit to seeing local churches changing nations, to growing church, bringing hope, by preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to absolutely everybody. And as we do that, we believe that we're going to see radical gospel, transformative power released, not just through this church, but through every church in the city. And this is for all of us, not just vicars, it's for all of us, whether we're in business whether we're working in jails, whether we're working in universities, education, all of us get to play our part as we commit to these things. Amen.